0: Isaiah 7, I'll read from Isaiah 7, 14. So therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning in worship. I pray that we would continue to bow our heads and hearts and minds to your word, and that it would inform uh, inform our instruction, inform our faith. I pray that Dan would exposit your word faithfully to us this morning and that your Holy Spirit would be with him. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Alright. I'm not sure how you feel. I always really like it when uh, either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day falls on a Sunday. I just feel like it's so helpful for my own heart and soul to be oriented around the things of our Lord. We've been spending our Advent season in Isaiah, picking some of those beautiful passages that speak of uh, the Advent, the coming of Jesus Christ. And we've really been moving backwards through Isaiah to this point. In Isaiah chapter 7, there is a big trouble at hand. The, the future looks very bleak for the people of God. It's a fear-filled season for them. A lot of unknowns. And they're about ready to walk into a long season of judgment. A long season of of darkness, of of quiet for us. I say quiet, not hearing from the prophet, not hearing from the voice of the Lord. As they get ready to walk into it, They're looking, where can they anchor some hope? Where can they anchor some faith during this season of time? And You just heard, read for you, where that hope will be anchored will be the last point of the sermon. But it is this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In the season, there's... Lights, twinkling lights, there's decorations, there's, there's greenery, there's ornaments, there's a lot of pretty sparkly things. If, if that's all the further, though, that your hope goes, at best it's a distraction. At best it distracts for a moment from the mundane, from the fading, from the, the difficult existence of living in a sin-filled, cursed world. There's not real hope. It's just a distraction. The verse just read for you, really read for you twice now. That's where hope exists. That's where the hope lies. Is the promise of a Savior. So that when things are difficult, and we live in a sin-cursed world, not just theoretically a sin-cursed world, but that your life experiences it. And maybe, for the most part, things go smoothly for you, but occasionally there's a difficulty, a hardship that comes around. Or maybe perhaps the providence is just difficult for you, that, that your health or, or your loss or the relationship you live in, that that difficulty is just always present. You don't really ever escape it. We need faith. We need hope that will sink deep down into the bedrock of God's goodness that that seeks his face, that goes into his promises and it holds there. Not as a mere distraction, but as something that grips our soul, that gives us direction, that gives us true and lasting joy. The scene here for Isaiah, we've painted the picture a little bit. I'm going to take just a moment where we're at. So Isaiah is just coming really under the scene and he's speaking here to Ahaz. And what you have is a recently divided kingdom. So you have Israel and Judah that have split. the north and the south. Ahaz is a king in the south over Judah. World powers are popping up all around, primarily Assyria. And in the north, you have the king there who has made an alliance. As he feels the pressure himself and he feels Assyria descending upon him, he makes an alliance with the Syrian king. And so Syria and the northern tribes have now allied together. We're some roughly 730 years before the birth of Christ. And so they have allied together. And so you have Ahaz in Judah who's now feeling really insecure, feeling very vulnerable, feeling very alone. And what is he going to do? How is he going to react? Because you see in this text what you have is, is you have the threat of Assyria, but now you also have the threat of, of Syria and the northern tribes, Israel combining together and coming after the southern tribes. And so David's heir here, Ahaz, is is feeling this pressure. You see it in verse uh, 2. It says, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. There's turmoil. There's panic. There's panic. It is a fear filled, unknown, difficult time. And so Isaiah comes with this message in verse 4. Say to him, here's what Isaiah is to say Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart faint. Do not fear. Be careful. Be quiet. Verse 9 really adds to the heart of what he's getting at. The end of verse 9. It says, for if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. What we need in the midst of Our age, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of just walking this this journey of life and its ups and downs, is we need faith that holds fast, that is anchored deep into the promises of Jesus Christ. Because if you're not firm in your faith, then you will not be firm at all. That is, you will find an anchor, you will find firmness nowhere else. All other ground is sinking sand. Everywhere else is shaky ground. It's waves, it's, it's the wind, it's whatever metaphor the scripture wants to use or we sing in songs, you'll toss to and fro. Your faith must be anchored down into Jesus Christ and him alone. Because if your faith is not, you will not be firm anywhere. You will not find your footing anywhere. And so Isaiah, as he comes and he tells Ahaz, your faith must be firm. He doesn't do it by saying, so don't worry, like it's not going to be that bad. Things, you know, he doesn't do it by denying reality. You look at verses 5 and 6, and he lays out exactly, they're coming down. Syria, the northern tribes, they're coming down. You're vulnerable. They want to set up their own king so that they have a stronger alliance against Assyria. And it's in the midst of that that Jesus says, stand firm. That God says, stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in your faith. So what I want to do is look at three promises then that this text gives us. Because I can tell you, stand firm in your faith, but but you're not just going to self-will it. What are the promises of God that anchor our faith firmly in Jesus Christ? Well, this text gives us three promises. The first one is this, that God promises that his church will succeed God promises that his church will succeed. He says it here, it's, there will always be a remnant. Hard times are coming, the enemy is coming, but I will be faithful, there will always be a remnant. Now if we were doing a full exposition of Isaiah, which we're not, I'm just cherry picking the best passages for, our, for Advent. Not the best, the ones that work best for us. <clears throat> But if we were to do a full exposition of it, you would see that early in Isaiah, an important part of Isaiah's prophecy is the names that Isaiah gives to his sons. He gives them the sons' names that are symbolic, serve alongside of his prophetic message. So that as he teaches and he preaches, then the name of the son sort of drives home the promise or d- drives home the warning, whatever it might be. And as oldest, his first son is mentioned here in chapter 7. <clears throat> Sheer Jeshub. We'll just call him SJ. <laughs> now you probably have the same thing I do, a footnote that points you down that tells you that name means a remnant shall return. When Ahaz is, is, is in a panic and he's getting ready, he says he's out checking the water systems for the for his area to make sure, hey, they're about ready to lay siege to us. And, and he's in a panic. And where am I going to turn to look? Isaiah goes and he meets him out in the field. And he brings with him his oldest son. A remnant shall return. And, and it... It is a symbolic reminder to assure Ahaz, to assure us of a reader of God's faithfulness. Earlier in Isaiah, you go back to Isaiah 6 and earlier, it talks about the judgment in a global sense that is coming. And it begins this metaphor that we've already seen a few times that Israel Judah will be like a tree that is cut down and what will be left is the stump. If you remember when we were in Isaiah chapter 11, we saw that already, that God promises judgment on Assyria and there as a whole forest of trees he'll lay them all down and they'll all be a big field of nothing but stumps but then he talks about the stump of Jesse and you remember the stump of Jesse unlike the other stumps which which kind of fade away and rot and die the stump of Jesse even though it seems nearly forgotten it's over here he preserves it Jesse is David's father if you remember And it says, out of that stump, a shoot will come. And we see that shoot is the promised one from the Davidic line. David himself, only the true and greater David. Jesus Christ will be the shoot from that stump. You think, well, why does that stump survive and not the other stumps? In the imagery that Isaiah gives. And it's this, because Jesus is not only the shoot that grows from it, he also is the root of the stump of Jesse. He is its source of life. His promises, it is him that makes it exist. He is the root, he gives it life. It is built upon him and his promises. It will not cease to exist. And so when all of this judgment comes and the, stumps are being, the trees are being laid bare and there's these stumps, the one stump that has Jesus Christ as its root and Jesus Christ as its shoot, the God-man. That is the one that will survive. In the Son's name, a remnant shall return. Yes, judgment is coming, but God will be faithful to his covenant promises we move on we we see that to be true for his church don't we he is committed to his covenant people he is committed to his church he is committed to us we are his and he is ours he will keep us to the end his new covenant promises that he will write his word upon our heart that he will forgive our sins That we will dwell with him eternally. So that Jesus would say to the disciples that even the gates of hell themselves will not prevail against the church. And so we're told if you don't have faith, you won't be firm at all. And here's the first promise. God is faithful to you. God is faithful to his covenant promises. God is always faithful to his people. He is faithful to his church. And he will provide for us. Secondly, God is sovereign over nations and kings. Why do we have faith in God? Because God is sovereign over nations and kings. You see this in verses 4 through 9, really, of our passage. In referring to to the the king of Syria, king of the southern tribes... Rezin and Pekah are their names. We'll, just, we'll read here together. Verse 4 says, And say to him, Be careful, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. And look at the name that he calls these two kings and their nations. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. The fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Romula. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramiel have devised evil against you saying let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tobiel as the king in the midst of it. You see what he calls them these two smoldering stumps <laughs> that's an insult it's basically you know they're all smoke and no fire or they they light on fire and burn out real quickly. There's, yeah, they're going to cause a little bit of damage, but there's nothing to worry about. And then actually the Lord drops the metaphor and just tells them exactly what is going to happen. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years... Ephraim will be shattered from being a people and the head of Eph- Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of uh, Remaliah. and if you are not firm in faith you will not be firm at all and so we tell them here's what's going to happen <clears throat> you know they're making their own alliance here that they're trying to set something up but within 10 years Assyria is going to come in and wipe out the north They're not going to stand. They're not going to to last at all. Within 65 years, they're going to be shattered. There's going to be no remembrance of them. They're, They're a smoldering stump. And you know what? Give it another 150 years from then, and Babylon is going to come in, and they're going to destroy Assyria, who just overthrew the northern alliance. He's saying these kingdoms rise, the nations rise and they fall. They're nothing, they're a smoldering stump. We see this play out throughout scripture. That The nations are but a drop in the bucket to our God. The king's hand is in, is, the king's heart is in the, the hand of the Lord and he directs it wherever he will as rivers of waters, Proverbs tells us. He is sovereign over kings and over nations. He sets their boundaries. He raises them up. He sets them up for a time, and he brings them down. And he's encouraging Ahaz. I will keep a remnant. I will be faithful to my people. And listen, wherever you turn, I am sovereign over every king and every nation ever. Why is it that you have Isaiah, the prophet, and you have Ahaz, the king, both in the same situation, facing the same dangers, and you have Ahaz, who, spoiler alert, responds so faithlessly, and you have Isaiah, who is so full of courage and boldness. It's not that like Isaiah is super Christian, who is kind of this self-made man who overcomes all temptation by himself, and he's just a better dude overall. What we do is we back up to Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah is the king of Ahaz, was the father of Ahaz. In the year that King Uzziah dies, Ahaz ascends to the throne, and at the same time Isaiah is called to his prophetic ministry. But immediately Isaiah is captured by the stunning glory of God. It says that he goes into the temple and he sees him high and lifted up, and the, the robe, the glory of his robe, fills the temple. His majesty goes about. Isaiah hears and agrees with the song, "Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah is captured by the glory of God. It overwhelms him. I keep hitting this as we go through this series, but as as we come to Christmas time, especially as we think about it, you think of David in Psalm 27, the one thing that he needs, the one thing his heart desires is to go up in the temple and to gaze upon the beauty of his Lord. What sustains us right now isn't just hard work and trying hard. It's not simple distractions. It is to to be given what we are made for and long for, to, to ascend above the mundane and the fading and the ordinary and see something transcendent and beautiful. Like Isaiah does when the glory of the Lord captures his heart and captures his mind. At Christmas, it's about the glory of Jesus Christ. The beauty of God become man that that transcends this age, that that captures our heart, that gives us something for our faith to sink down into. And so Isaiah is captured by the glory of God. The promise is given to us. Stand firm in faith, because if you're not, you won't be firm in anything. Why? Here's my promises. God will build his church. Secondly, God is sovereign over nations and over kings. I'd be remiss not to... I mean, we're entering into 2024, an election year. I mean, you remember 2020, right? It's hard to believe that was as long ago as it was. You know, we're just about ready. You're going to hear so many voices saying so much ridiculous stuff in the next several months and I don't care where you are on the political spectrum whatever it's all just ridiculous let me tell you my true feelings about it you you don't know what's true you don't know and and you have I'm sure good meaning my meaning whatever but you you have they're just men they're just men and women they're human they err and the more you get them together, the more the system grows, the scripture is clear, that the more there is power, the more that there is money, the more that there is influence, the more corrupt it becomes, the more oppressive that it becomes. The, the less equity, the less righteousness, the less wisdom. That is why when Jesus comes, he's called Wonderful Counselor. Almighty God, Prince of Peace, he rules in, with wisdom, with equity, with righteousness. Remember, don't don't put your allegiance, don't put your identity, don't stake friendships on listening to the voices over the next months. It's all shaky ground. If your faith is not set fully in Jesus Christ, then you won't be firm anywhere. No political party, no specific pundit, nobody will give you firmness except Jesus Christ. In the midst of it, let us rise above the ugliness, the mundane, to something transcendent. Jesus Christ and him crucified and him risen and him glorified. All right, third promise that is given. And it is this, that God has given a sign. God has given a sign to help our faith stand firm. It's an interesting little text here. In verse 10, the Lord speaks to Ahaz. He says, Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Basically, it's like here's a blank check. You ask for it, it's yours. Ask for a sign, ask anything. And at first, Ahaz may sound like a little spiritual here verse 12 but Ahaz says I will not ask I will not put the Lord to the test he's good at what a lot of us are doing is hiding unbelief behind pious speech (laughs) He, he even uses he quotes Deuteronomy the same text that Jesus actually quotes when he's tempted by Satan but you remember Satan in the wilderness is tempting Jesus with that and he's tempting him to to you know not follow fully God's commands and kind of shortcut the process to glory without going through the suffering and the cross that that God has called him to. Here, let's just be plain. If God says, ask something of me, ask something. (laughs) God opens it up. It's the invitation to him. And it's not that Ahaz is answering like, no, my faith is so firm, I don't even need a sign. That's how Determined and courageous and unfearful of man I am. No, what happens is you see the ingratitude and the unbelief of Ahaz. He doesn't believe anything that Isaiah is saying to him. He doesn't ask for a sign because he doesn't believe any of it. So he says, no, I don't need a sign. In verse 13... This is funny. It's kind of just exhausted. And he said, Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? <laughs> he's wearing everybody out with your unbelief. You see, Ahaz is going to turn to Assyria and he's going to make an alliance with Syria. That's where he's going to turn for help. And it's not just like, hey, they decided to partner up. This is a little country that is looking to this dominant nation of Assyria for military help. So that means we will become subservient to you. You know what? We'll follow your procedures. We'll worship your gods. We'll live in the way you want to live. We won't cause any problems. We'll adopt your way of life and primarily your gods will become our gods. And so what happens is they break their covenant with God to enter into a covenant with Assyria. They're so filled with fear of man that when it comes, when the things come pressing in, they totally forsake God. And they turn to Assyria for protection, even after Isaiah said, Listen, Assyria is going to be nothing but a smoldering stump in a little bit. And so he turns away. But God, in his graciousness to us, like he does to us many times, and our own faithlessness, gives a sign anyway. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want to ask for a sign? Okay. Then, from my own initiative, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And then we have this beautiful text. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Listen to Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, And then in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. They called his name Jesus. Emmanuel. Again, if we were doing a full exposition of Isaiah, <clears> that there may be some more immediate, impartial fulfillments of this. Isaiah has a second son, and you'll see it in chapter 8. It seems to maybe be like a partial fulfillment of this, and day, although That son is not named Emmanuel, and he's not born of a virgin, so it's very partial and really just serves as a sign pointing further to Emmanuel. But we know that the looming mountain peak out in the distance, the true fulfillment of it, as Matthew tells us, is that God himself will take on human form. Our confession of faith today, the Heidelberg Catechism, what do you confess when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? Answer, that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus he is also the true seed of David and like his brothers in every respect, every respect, yet without sin who is and remains true and eternal God. That is that in becoming as one of us, Jesus did not cease to be who he eternally was and eternally will be. He did not cease to be the divine. He did not cease to be the begotten Son of God. He he didn't transform into something. But the divine is now wed for all time with human nature that it is a man. A man sits right now at God's right hand as king over all the nations. A God-man. And a God-man because of a miraculous incarnation, because of the virgin birth. It is the virgin birth. It is how we have the uniting of deity with full humanity. So Jesus, the Son of God, was born of, of Mary. That is, he comes to us as a man like Adam, bearing flesh, just as Adam bore flesh, but he does not come in the line of Adam. He does not come inheriting the depravity, the sin nature of Adam. He had to become man to live the life, to be the sacrifice that we needed. And yet he is the divine son of God. He did not inherit that depravity Again, the virgin birth does that for us. So that then we can say the second question there that we went over in Heidelberg. What benefit then do you receive from the holy conception and the birth of Christ? He is our mediator and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. He is our Savior. We have seen it all through scripture. Promise Genesis, the promise in Abraham. He will be our God. We will be his people. To be the people of God is to be in the presence of God. Moses says that. If you take your presence from us, we are no people at all. It is to have the presence of God. And yet sinful humanity cannot stand in the presence of God. And it's the virgin birth. It's the giving of Jesus Christ. It's the incarnation that makes it possible that God can dwell in our midst. And it doesn't just mean immediate wrath and judgment and death for us. It is peace and wisdom and hope because we are hidden in Jesus Christ. So the true blessing, the true miracle, the the, the true... Promise that our faith anchors down deep into is not just that God is with us, but that God is with us and He is for us. And He is so because of Jesus Christ, because of a life lived perfectly, because of a death died in our stead, because Jesus became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. All that is made up in the humility of Jesus Christ. And then his exaltation and his resurrection. So that in union with Christ we share in that. We share in all those benefits. So that the sign, the promise is. God with us. And God for us. Let's pray. Lord we thank you for your word. Lord we thank you for its power. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for each one here. Lord, I know a lot of the conditions folks find themselves in. Circumstances that are difficult. Relationships that are difficult. Lord, and there's a lot I'm sure I don't know, but you do. Lord, might the truth, the beauty of Jesus Christ capture their heart. Lord, be what is needed to give them faith that anchors down deep. Lord, help us to remember, to believe your promises. Help us where exposed again and again and again to the ordinary means of grace, of your word and prayer, the fellowship of the saints, your table. Each of those Lord would serve to drive home your promises. Lord, that your church will overcome, you're faithful to your people, that you are sovereign over all things, over kings and over nations, and you have given us this sign, which is a surety of our salvation and our victory, that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, call his name Emmanuel. Lord, that was stated 730 years later, at a point in history, an actual time in history, we have an event we look back on some 2,000 years later and we say, Yes, God came to dwell among men. Lord, we thank you for that. I'll give you just a moment.